Welcome to Living Well into the Future. I'm your host, Julie B. Adler. This series brings men and women ranging in age from their teens through their 90s to discuss vital issues relating to food, housing, climate, and health. Our guests are problem solvers, solution makers. Learn what their contributions and experiences were and are, their challenges and their successes. Consider how their insights might spark your discussions among the generations and inspire action toward a healthy and secure future for all. If you missed the first episode on housing or any of our four-part series on food or just want to listen to certain episodes again, you can find them on WTBR fm.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. You can even ask your smart device to play the Living Well into the Future podcast. As I mentioned in our previous program about housing, I have had a long professional interest in the field. And along the way, I've met talented and accomplished people whom I'd like you to meet. Bill and Margot Muma, husband and wife, are two of those people. Bill and Margot Muma, now in their 80s, will talk about the design, building, and life of the net zero home they built in Western Massachusetts. These are no ordinary homeowners. William Muma, Bill, is Emeritus Professor of International Environmental Policy and founding director of the Center for International Environment and Resource Policy at the Fletcher School at Tufts University. He currently serves as co-director of the Global Development and Environment Institute at Tufts, which he co-founded. He received his BA degree in chemistry from Williams College and PhD in physical chemistry from MIT. He had a 26-year career in chemistry and environmental studies at Williams College, where he directed the Center for Environmental Studies. He served as AAAS Science Fellow in the U.S. Senate. He began working on climate change in 1988 as the first director of the climate program at World Resources Institute in Washington. He has been a lead author of five intergovernmental panel on climate change reports, including the IPCC report for which they received the Nobel Peace Prize for climate change in 2007. He currently chairs the board of directors of two climate science and policy organizations and serves on the boards of directors of many other organizations. Margot's background as a hospital administrator and partner in the building of their home has led her to work with both organizations and individuals on improving the energy performance of their buildings or residences, large and small, old and new. Margot Mouma received her undergraduate degree from Mount Holyoke College and holds two master's degrees from Harvard, one in the field of education and the other in public health. She and her husband, Bill, have made guest presentations to classes in architecture, design, engineering, and environment at Tufts, Harvard, and MIT. Since completion of their net zero house, they have hosted house tours for more than 700 visitors, and the house has been featured in a number of publications and websites. Margot and Bill began building their home in the early 2000s, not only to promote their own values and principles, but as a model for others. 
Their description of the consideration and actions that went into building their home should very well promote discussions between the generations into how we can live well into the future. We had six areas where it needed action. We needed to uh, reduce emissions from energy and technology. We needed to increase the removal rates by nature. We had to change agricultural practices. We had to change economic rules so that bad options don't make profits the way good options do. We also had pointed out that we cannot just have unbridled growth of human population and that the most effective means is, was not for controlling population, but was educating girls in the world, that that reduced fertility rates everywhere it was done. And anyway, so we had all this in there. We had these 29 little graphics showing the trends and none of them are good. And uh, it's interesting, not many governments paid much attention to it, but corporations did. That's Bill Muma's snapshot of the latest 10,000 page report on climate change. In the latter part of this show, we'll hear more from Bill about the state of climate change and what positive and negative actions will affect our future. But right now, we'll speak with Bill and Margot about the journey they took in building their home. Welcome, Bill Mumat and Margot Mumat, to Living Well into the Future. I am in your home in the Northern Berkshires. And first, we're going to talk about how this house came to be. You decided in the early 2000s that you wanted to build a sustainable home. So, Margo, what were your first considerations in planning the house? And then, Bill, please join in. Sure. As we envisioned the home that we wanted to build on a beautiful piece of land that we had acquired several years before, we developed what we call our fourfold aesthetic. And those had to do with how the house sat on the site, how it fit into the vernacular architecture of the region, how it embodied our values for using as little energy as possible and derive the energy that we needed for our needs from renewable sources. And finally, we thought that we might build a house that could model for others what was possible in addressing climate change. Let's go back to these elements. Bill, you fell in love with the site before you uh, even knew what you were going to do with it. Tell us what made you fall in love with this piece of property. It met every criteria I'd ever dreamed of when I stumbled on it. It was advertised in the local paper. Margaret already gone back to the Boston area, and I was here for a few more days. And I called the person, and she said, go up to this location and take a look. And I came in, and there was an old farm road, which we now know was built probably around the 1850s that led into the property. There were huge oak trees. As I came in a little further, there was a pond. As I got closer to the pond, a great blue heron took off. And then a red-tailed hawk flew over and squawked. And I felt like I was in a Disney movie or something. It was just so remarkable. And it had forests, it had meadows, and it had a pond. And I said, that's more than I ever envisioned. And it was at the end of a road, meaning there would be no traffic going by. So I thought this fills every criteria I've ever had. 
So it took you a few years of planning before you set to work on the house. What were the professionals that you had to engage to get to the point where you can go from your principles that you wanted to follow to the creation of the house? I, I had been working for many years on climate change and the technologies for addressing climate change. And I had been a co-author on, by that point, I guess it was uh, three intergovernmental panel on climate change reports. And so I'd met with all these people who were really expert in these different areas, solar, when I started in 1992, when it was only NASA could afford solar panels. But as things moved on, I could see the direction that everything was going. And so I had heard of people who had tried to do this and failed. And so let me put it this way. I knew enough to know that I had to get a professional who knew how to do this. And we tried one architect who was award-winning, great things. But when I said, this doesn't look like it'll be very efficient, he says, oh, we'll do that later. We knew we had the wrong architect. When it became obvious that the architects in the early 2000s really didn't have a good grasp on how to make a house super energy efficient, super insulated. I went to the Boston Institute of Architects and asked a person who I had seen talk at conferences about the need for energy efficient building, whether there were any architects in Massachusetts who had real experience in designing and building these houses. And she gave me three names and she said, that's all for the whole state. And one of them was located in Amherst, Massachusetts, the other two in the Boston area. So I thought I'd start <laughs> with the uh, Amherst architect. It turned out that Bruce Coldham, our architect, had about 20 years of trying to make each successive building that he worked on more energy efficient, use more green materials and so forth in order to build it. He believed in teamwork. I have to first say that he was wary of having clients that said they wanted to be super energy efficient. And then when push came to shove, would cut out energy efficient measures and often add things that were energy consuming, like very energy hog appliances or far more windows, but unwillingness to do triple pane windows because of the cost, that kind of thing. So when we met with him, he was actually testing us. He was interviewing us rather than the other people. But his question was, how much energy do you use on an annual basis? And most people, if they can answer that question, will answer with the cost. But we answered with the gallons of fuel oil and kilowatt hours of electricity. And he knew at that moment we were the client that he had been waiting for. <laughs> and what other expertise did he join to the team to create? Well, as, as we started this process, he said, Bill, would you be at all interested in having a really good building engineer as part of this team? And I said, I think that would be really important. He said, I, I've worked with Mark Rosenbaum. Mark Rosenbaum is the best building engineer for efficient buildings in the whole Northeast United States. And I said, yes. And he told me about how much more that would be. And I said, okay, we can do that. Because it's small in relation to thinking you're going to do this and not accomplishing the goal. Yes, that's right. And, and then he said, 
all right, now you have to choose a builder. I said, but we don't even have a design. He said, you have to have a builder who will join me in developing the design. Now, there aren't a lot of architects that start at that point. And he said, it should be someone local and someone who, you know, whom who we can, we're pretty sure we can work with. So we, we came up with three possibilities, one with whom we'd worked before on renovations and been very satisfied with what he did. And then there were, in fact, two others, both on Henderson Road, where we live, two builders. And one of them was very experimental and not very experienced. And the other one was somebody who on his own had been building houses to energy star standards and exceeding energy star standards. And because he thought it was the right thing to do. Because he thought it was the right thing to do. And so he's the one we chose. And he was only a third of the mile down the road, so it was local. <laughs> and this team and we designed, and then Steve Haskins, the builder, constructed it. And it was a lot of back and forth the whole time. Once you had your team in place, you had to come up with a plan that met your fourfold goals for the house. Since, as far as you knew, no one in Massachusetts achieved what you had intended to do as a model for others. So you were pioneers in building a house that actually worked. Now, two of the things that are part of this energy efficiency are solar and then geothermal energy. Mm -hmm. How were they integrated into the house? Before we got to that, it was made clear to us that we had to build a house that would not leak a lot of heat, right? Because there's not a roof big enough for solar panels to run a heat pump if your house is basically heating the great outdoors as well as the indoors. And so that was the first part. And we did not set out to be zero net energy. We just wanted to be as efficient as we could and use as much renewable energy as we could. And I remember when Mark was doing some modeling of our house with different assumptions. And he about the second round of that, he came in and he said, I think you might even be able to get to net zero. And I remember saying this to Mark, I said, Mark, can I afford it? Because everybody says, oh, it costs you half the cost to get to 90%, and then it costs you 10 times that much to do the last 10% or something like that. And he said, no, I think you can. And so I said, well, let's go for it. I'd just like to say that far more important than solar panels or heat pumps or whatever it is to build a house that's not too large, that meets your needs, and that is extremely well insulated and air sealed. So what we call the thermal envelope is really the most important thing to address. The other things are mechanicals. They, in fact, could be changed out over time. But the walls, the floor, uh, the insulation under the basement slab. The ceiling, the roof. The, the, those are really important. And that's where the building starts and orientation so that you can take advantage of passive solar. Margot, you've made the point that we're used to hearing about green homes, but that is no longer the standard and people are talking about net zero. So could you just give a short explanation of green home lead standard net zero mm -hmm. in terms of the terms green and net zero 
and meaning net zero on an annual basis, is that green is an imprecise term that talks about various features in terms of air quality, materials that are used, maybe throw some solar panels on the roof, maybe have solar hot water, whatever it is. But there's no measurable way of telling that a house is green. It's used very commonly in home magazines and that kind of thing. Net zero is a much more precise term because there are metrics for measuring what your energy use is and what your energy production is. Those dollars per year in oil or gas can be translated into British thermal units or therms or gallons, all of which can be converted to British thermal units or to kilowatt hours. And the same is true with electricity. So you can actually add your heating and cooling costs to your electrical use and find out how many kilowatt hours per square foot per year you use. And those are metrics that are easily verifiable. Thank you. The second principle then is highly energy efficient design and as much natural energy as possible. Mm -hmm. And so you've addressed the efficiency through insulation and windows and things. What else was there? We, we just alluded to this a little bit, but or, the, the thing that costs nothing is orientation. And what we learned is that to have a house that would meet net zero, meaning that we, our panels could heat the house and run all the electricity with being able to export surplus when we weren't using it and when we would have to import from the grid at night, but that we would always be exporting more than we import. We asked about being off grid and our solar panel installer said, you know, that's really a bad idea. He said, on a July day, you'll be producing far more electricity than you can possibly use. And why not share those solar electrons with the rest of the neighbors? And so we got net metering, meaning that our meter runs forward and we, get, we would be getting charged when we're drawing from the grid. And when we're sending to the grid, it turns it around and runs it backwards. And year after year, we are running it backwards more than we're running it forwards. So that brings up a question that I didn't ask you before, and that is about the storage of solar energy. I remember when you were first building the house, there weren't reliable batteries that had the capacity to store solar power efficiently and cost-effectively. Is there now a reliable and efficient battery that can store solar energy? Yes, there is. We have not done that other than having an electric vehicle, which has batteries in it. But we've thought about that. But at the time, all you had were those lead-acid batteries, and they were really nasty, and they, they did not meet any green criteria whatsoever. It's The utilities now are recognizing that because solar and wind and other zero-emitting sources are variable, that... Being able to store when you're producing more than you need would be a useful thing to have. And I understand that some of the utilities now are actually providing subsidies to people to install <clears throat> batteries with their solar energy systems and uh, to be able to call on that when there's a huge demand, for example, air conditioning in the summertime. And uh, that's when we're exporting the most. But if we had stored a lot in the batteries, they could take it then. It also provide, we, we have no fossil fuels on this. We don't use any fossil fuels. If we had a backup diesel generator, that would be fossil fuels and that's off limits. But if we had battery storage and the power went out from the grid, I can actually draw directly from my panels 
during the daytime, but it'd be nice maybe to have uh, a little extra uh, steward that we could use at night. So in the 14 years since you've moved in, the battery storage is now adequate to the task. It's adequate to the task. Yes, definitely. Our whole heating system is run by electricity because it's heat pumps. And, and the heat pump takes heat out of the ground, which comes into the house at about 55 degrees year round. And 55 degrees isn't very comfortable. It's a lot more comfortable than minus 10, which is what I got here this winter. And so the heat pump raises that temperature up to about 85 degrees. And then there's water that's circulated through tubes in our floors. And that 85 degree water heats the house. So we have no radiators, no vents, no air circulation, forced hot air, anything like that. And it's wonderfully comfortable. You're immersed in a constant temperature wherever you go in the house. There are no drafts, no cold spots. I might mention something which I'm noticing here. It is much quieter than a normal house. Yes. You don't have all the mechanical things that are constantly no. filling the air. It, no. It's remarkable. Yes. And, and the triple pane windows make it even quieter. So now that we have spring peepers in the evening, I like to open the windows so we can hear them. <laughs> uh, and also we have 12 inch thick walls. So that amount of insulation makes it quiet. <clears throat> and we did put insulation around the bathrooms so that you don't hear all the flushing sounds and so on. Otherwise they might reverberate through the walls. We've talked about some of the bigger design consideration, and now I'd like to get down to the materials that you chose, why you chose them, and what limitations or challenges you might have had in obtaining materials that were consistent with good health and renewable resource aspects of your project. Your goal was to use locally materials. Margot, how do you, did that work out? The Green Building Council used a metric of uh, within a 500 mile radius of the building site as a way of defining local materials. So that meant no importation of exotic woods from South America or Africa or anything like that. But the main thing that we had to acquire from somewhere further away were windows, the air exchanger, doors, because American manufacturers at this time did not make good triple pane windows. Not, and with fiberglass frames and triple locks, which we have, all of which prevent air infiltration. So we went to our neighbor to the north, Canada, where the government had subsidized at least 20 years of research in cold climate building and had products available that would be suitable for Northern Berkshire County. So those components of our house did come from less than 500 miles away, but not from the U.S. And, and then the wood, that was another issue. We tried to get locally sourced, sustainably produced wood. We were able to find some pine siding for the garage and the shed, but we could not get locally produced two by fours. But those all came from Canada. I think it was still within 500 miles. But I remember one day coming up here and seeing a, a two by four with a stamp on it, product of the Czech Republic. Why in the world would you get a product for the Czech Republic in this load of two by fours? I have no idea. That is wild. 
at this point, after having lived in this house for years... We're in the 15th year. Can you describe the level of comfort you've had and, and how maintaining this house might compare to the other houses that you lived in prior to this? First, just what is very obvious to anybody in this house is that there are no drafts, that it holds the temperature consistently as you move from room to room, and that there is, particularly in the wintertime, significant solar gain, so that if we had a thermostat set at, let's say, 65, the room may heat up to 70 degrees during the day. But because the walls are so thick, the rate of heat loss is so slow, that gain that we may get between 10 and 2 during the day is adequate to maintain the temperature throughout the night until the following day. We do not change our thermostat at night. We don't have a setback and sending it forward because the temperature of the house is very consistent. And uh, the only time we lower the thermostat is if we're leaving the house for two days or more. And then fortunately now with computer connectivity, we can preheat it before we get back here if we remember. You've both informed us that the basis for this net-zero energy-efficient home relies on thick insulation, proper orientation, triple-pane windows, and less on the mechanical components that we might have thought. But the question of maintenance, what is the upkeep and keeping up with technology? Bill, over time, the technology has changed, and how has that changed what you've done with the solar power? Three and a half years ago, when I bought an electric vehicle, I realized we were going to need more solar panels. The original solar panels we put on the house were 11% efficient. That meant that if you took a unit of energy of sunlight, you got 11% of that energy as electricity. That's not very good. And so I was going to have to put on new panels, and I discovered that new panels were over 20% efficient, and they cost less than 40% as much. And so I said, is there a market for used solar panels? And there is. And so I replaced all my solar panels. They'd long been paid for. In fact, we didn't think of it as, as a cost to be paid back. We viewed it as an investment. When we first bought the solar panels, I think we paid $40,000 for them, which would be, have been the cost if we had put in a fireplace and a masonry chimney. And we decided not to do that because it would waste too much heat. Or I could have put it into my retirement fund, my 401k. But this return that we've gotten from the solar panels was far greater than anything that we could have invested in. It so, exceeded 8.5% per year, Yeah, the return. And my solar panels kept increasing their value because the price of electricity was going up and I wasn't having to pay it. And the price of heating oil was going up and I didn't have to pay it. People are now aware of interior air quality and the toxicity of materials used inside, but I think that Bill mentioned that he as a chemist and you as a hospital administrator were aware of these when you were planning. What were some of your considerations? I guess in the first place, anytime you tighten up a house or a building, you have to be very aware of air quality. and. It was not customary 
to provide for mechanical ventilation in single-family residences. But with the design we have of this house, where there's so little air infiltration, which is a natural system of getting fresh air into a house, we had to arrange for it. So a net zero house should always have a mechanical ventilation system. And the ventilation system we have on its normal setting when just the two of us are here is one complete air exchange for the entire house every hour. But we can set it to two air exchanges, three, four, or even five air exchanges per hour. If we have a lot of people here. If we have a lot of people here and want to have more ventilation. Is this what airplanes are doing now? Mm -hmm. Yeah. They're, but they're increasing it, not as much as that. Did you explain about the heat exchange part? Yes. Uh, the air exchanger we have, instead of exhausting all the preheated air from the house to the outside and then drawing in the cold winter air to replace it, which needs to be preheated before it can be circulated, we have a system in which the warm exhaust air preheats the incoming cold air. And that's about 70% efficient so that we, we save on heating the air that circulates in the house. And Bill, you mentioned the materials that you took great care with. I was particularly shocked to discover when we went shopping that many cabinets have some kind of either particle board or plywood or something that is glued with the uh, glue that releases formaldehyde for years. Formaldehyde is a very toxic substance. It's a cancer-causing substance, and it's in virtually every home in the air. And in a very tight house, the concentration could build up quite high. So we carefully avoided that, and we also avoided wall-to-wall -wall carpeting is notorious for outgassing various chemicals. And so we did not put in any wall-to-wall -wall carpeting. We also, because of this part of the world, had to worry about radon, the radioactive gas that comes from the decay of minerals in the rocks and things around here. And we didn't know that we'd need that or not, but what we decided to do was that we would put in the shaft and everything and vents over the roof, which cost about $100 at the time. If we'd put it in later, it'd been about $10,000. That seemed to me like a reasonable expense to, to do that and be ready. And when we tested, sure enough, we didn't have air radon in the living quarters, what we did in the basement. We have a fan that runs down there full time. That's part of our energy load, but we've never had any problem with radon. We also avoided the urethane finish with paints and, uh, and we bought flooring that was pre-finished and it's produced in sustainably oak flooring in a place in Quebec that's been doing this for 75 years. And they have the most amazing safety features for protecting the workers from the outgassing of the products. And they don't just suck it up a stack and blow it in the air. They actually destroy it in the stack. So I said, well, this is getting about where I would like to be. We also avoided polyvinyl PVC pipe because the manufacturing of that involves a great deal of exposure to the workers. And because of the way they make the chlorine, they use a mercury electrode, and it's probably the largest source of mercury in the environment is from that product. So we decided we'd avoid that. And of course, the initial reaction was, oh, that's impossible. Everybody uses BBC pipe, but it's everybody uses BBC pipe. But there was another material. It didn't have zero environmental impact. We didn't have those consequences. And it cost, I think it was 10% more. And so we did as much of that kind of thinking and planning as we could.
building new houses to net zero standards is a contribution to the fight against climate change, but there are far more existing houses that are less energy efficient. Margot, you've been doing a lot of work with other people to retrofit and renovate older houses. Can you give us an example of what you're able to do to increase energy efficiency and other issues that are encompassed in creating sustainable dwellings. The starting point for uh, most of these clients is a, a thorough energy audit. Mass Save makes it possible and it gets you a certain distance, but usually you probably need an expert who has infrared cameras and some other things to pinpoint where the leaky spots in the house exist. Two ways I work with clients. Some clients are interested in doing an addition to their house, remodeling a kitchen, something like that. Anytime you open up a wall or redo something, reside a house is an opportunity to address energy efficiency and insulation and air sealing. So in those situations, I work with people on the addition or whatever renovation they want to make. Other people would really like to address the whole house and reduce their energy consumption. And for the most part, it's possible to reduce people's energy consumption by about 40%. And I have to say to begin with that most of the clients who come to me have already done a lot to reduce their energy consumption. So I'm talking about 40% less than a lower number they've already gotten to because I think in order to make this work, it has to be in a high level of consciousness for the client. They have to really want to do it. They've thought about it a lot in their entire lifestyle, not just even in their home. Can you give us a few examples of what you've been able to do? Oh, there's some great examples. This was a professional couple in the Boston area and a very nice Tudor-style home with slate roof, stucco, timbers in a Boston suburb. They loved the house. It was pretty big, too. It was pretty big. Both of their children were grown, not going to be living at home anymore. And it had turrets, and it didn't have just a simple sloping roof. Yes, it needed a pretty thorough energy assessment, and then we decided what we needed to do. And by the way, the draftiness of the house was such that Mrs. Lee, who liked to play the piano, had to play piano with gloves on, with, with finger, fingerless gloves and her coat on uh, because it was so cold <laughs> in, in this house with the kind of setbacks they were doing on their thermostat. We did a pretty thorough job of insulating, including gaining access to inside walls to insulate the turret. We replaced some skylights with insulated skylights, and, and then we replaced the heating system, which was a gas heating system with a condensing boiler and a very small hot water tank with a, a very quick recovery so that they could get along with a 40-gallon water tank, but there was a quick recovery if their kids came home with college and grad student friends and, I suspect by now, spouses and grandchildren. So we were able to reduce the energy use of that house by 40%. Margot, can you give us another example? I had another client, had a much, much smaller budget a smaller house. And a much smaller house of 
an 1850s kind of farmhouse and space, both both a counter in the kitchen for breakfast and then a nice dining space when she gathered with friends and family. It had a window seat, windows on three sides facing the view, and, and we changed out the heating system there too, got them to stop burning wood, which was drawing foul air from the basement to feed the wood stove and greatly improved the air quality of that house as well. Added a bathroom by threading pipes through a chimney that we no longer needed to use. And they also were able to significantly reduce their energy consumption. Even though it was larger, it was what? So the 40 or 50% less energy. I want to also say it's really important to maintain the character of the house. Both of these houses were not their typical rectangular two-story box. And so all these modifications had to be done in such a way that the small rural farmhouse characteristic was maintained or the stately Tudor home in the suburbs with its slate roof was left intact. And the fact that was possible is, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. But it, there's no co- cookie cutter approach, unfortunately. It's one house at a time. And now to the big issue, the reason you've worked so hard to make your home sustainable, the issue of climate change. Bill, as lead author of five intergovernmental panel on climate change reports, you assessed climate issues in countries all over the world. Were you able to make prescriptive recommendations? Yes. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change was established in 1989, and they just completed their sixth report. About every six years, they do a a major report. This last one was 10,000 pages long, so I don't expect that many of your listeners will have read it. Fortunately, there's about a 35-page summary for policymakers that is mostly what is reported on in the news, and there are three of those in each presentation. There's one on the science of climate change, one on uh, the impacts and adaptation, and a third one on mitigation or what we do to slow climate change. And this last one was came out as close to prescription as we were allowed to go. It basically just said that we have failed. It basically it was prescriptive of what had not worked and, and indicated what types of changes of technologies for reducing emissions about the need to increase the removals of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and pointed out a little known fact that we already, we, we talk about being zero net carbon by 2050. That's a common goal, which is a great goal to have because not a single CEO or government president or anything will be around by then. So it, it's a convenient thing to be able to do. And that came out of a study that showed if we really wanted to climate change from increasing more and meet a goal that was set in 2015 of not rising more than, well, it's one and a half degrees Celsius or 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit above pre-industrial levels. We're already half more than halfway there that we'd have to do certain things. We'd have to reduce our emissions below by half below 2005 levels by 2030. And we have to have nature taking out as much or more than we're putting in every year by 2050. And then we have nature taking out more than we're putting in for the rest of the century and beyond. 
That's the only way we can meet those kind of goals. There are a lot of implications from that. As you've described it, a third of the report or a portion is about mitigation. In all of these reports going back to the first ones, mm -hmm. There were prescriptions on what you could do. The reason it wasn't yeah. prescriptive was because you couldn't tell the governments. We couldn't tell them what to do. We told them what they could do. And it's both the technology side as well as the policy side. So there's a lot of analysis about carbon taxes, how that might work. It doesn't say this is what you want to do, but it says this is a tool. There are regulations you could have. And what the scientists and economists and others do is they look at examples where some of these things were actually done to see what the consequence was. In Europe, where gasoline tax, and we, we whine about gasoline taxes in the US. In Europe, gasoline taxes more than double the price of, of triple the price of, in many places, of, of the fuel. And lo and behold, people drive fewer miles, or I guess they drive fewer kilometers over there, but for the, for the shorter distances. And there is more public transportation. And so you can look at these examples and say, okay, this has worked here, this has worked there. So basically, here's a toolbox that you have. We give them a toolbox. We don't tell them which choice to make because that's obviously a political decision. But we make it clear that this tool in this toolbox is a whole lot more efficient and effective than this other tool that's in the toolbox. And it looks like China has taken action which has been ameliorative. Yes. Yes. It's amazing. Uh, China, China has manufactured 80% of all solar panels in the world that exist today. And they've installed a lot of them in their own country. For a while, they were exporting them because they make so much money off of that because Europe and the U.S. were way behind. And China being China, when they decide to do something, they go in. We were stuck with a shortage of silicon for the cells. And it would cost a half a billion dollars to build an adequate facility here. Nobody would do it. In China, they said, what? You need that? Here, we'll build five. And so they broke the cost barrier for solar panels. Have we now caught up on that? We, we can now supply enough, but we are way behind in terms of manufacturing in this country. We're way behind. We, we have an excellent wind turbine company, but China has several. Denmark was the first country to really make large wind turbines. And uh, the population of Denmark is smaller than that of Massachusetts. And yet they have made the largest, no longer the majority, but they have the plurality. They've made more wind turbines than any other country. And imagine if that were in the economy of Massachusetts. Just going further with respect to the implications of the reports and the stage of the climate. In 2019, you and what was at that time 11,000 other scientists. Some of best friends. <laughs> 11,000 of your friends. And now it's up to over 14,000 of yes. your best friends raised the alarm and resulted in any positive action? It's interesting. We had six areas where we needed action. We needed to uh, reduce emissions from energy and technology. We needed to increase the removal rates by nature. We had to change agricultural practices. We had to change economic rules so that bad options don't make profits the way good options do. We also had pointed out that we cannot just have unbridled growth of human population. and that the most effective means is, was not for controlling population, but was educating girls in the world, that that reduced fertility rates everywhere it was done. And anyway, so we had all this in there. We had these 29 little graphics showing the trends and none of them are good. 
And uh, it's interesting, not many governments paid much attention to it, but corporations did, and subnational governments, states, provinces, cities, a lot of members of the public got the message. And so that has raised the response rate by quite a bit. I, I was involved in starting an organization to work with, with the corporations to address climate change beginning in 2004, because the U.S. would not ratify the Kyoto Protocol, which was supposed to, we were supposed to do, and, and nothing was going to get done. And so we said, maybe subnational governments and corporations might be able to do something. I'll just give you one of the examples. We have something that's called RE100, Renewable Energy 100. 2014, if we could get 100 big corporations to commit to 100% renewable electricity, wouldn't that be great? We now have over 350 corporations. They're getting over 40% of their electricity today from renewables, right? You can't do it all instantly. And the total amount of renewable electricity they're using is about the same as the total electricity of the United Kingdom of Great Britain. So if they were a country, they would be, I don't know, whatever... The UK is probably seventh or eighth in the world in terms of energy consumption. But that shows that it's doable. It's doable and it's profitable. That's what's also interesting these companies have figured out. Well, that is the first good news I've heard well, about we did. Uh, climate change. Congratulations. So to go back to the less than positive news, uh, with Biden's climate plan stalled in Congress, if the U.S. doesn't take action, what's the cost to our country in terms of health and quality of life? It's not what will it be, it's what it is already. Think of the wildfires we're having. Think of the drought, the one flooding and flo the, the drought in one, and then the flooding elsewhere. We've lost billions of dollars of crops to flooding in the Midwest from uh, these incredible heavy precipitation events. Look at the tornado losses. Look at the additional losses from hurricanes. Doesn't seem like there are many more hurricanes, but there are a lot fewer category ones and twos and a lot more fours and fives. So they've become more intense. So we're already suffering. The air quality deterioration from the wildfires has been incredible in California and Oregon and Washington. And the last big fire actually deteriorated the air all the way to New York. This is not just a, a theoretical concept that we ought to worry about. Oh, by the way, we've had, uh, we're right raising sea level. I literally read Charleston, South Carolina has now something, they used to have something like three or four sunny day floodings from the ocean per year, and it's now up to 30 some days. And so going to cost billions of dollars to build those walls, which will only work for a certain amount of time if we don't stop it and get, get it back down again. In speaking with Anita Ledbetter, who's head of the Build San Antonio Green, she was telling me that the extreme weather in Phoenix has melted walls and roofs and sidewalks. Yeah. Now, can we expect that to happen? And how do, we're talking about housing. How are people going to live in those conditions? They better have really well-insulated houses that don't use materials that are going to melt in the heat. That's number one. There have even been incidents. There was some at, at National Airport in Washington a few years back where it got so hot that airplanes began to sink into the tarmac and they had to bring tractors out to pull them out of the tarmac. When you say that, I know, having lived in San Antonio, Texas, that I've been out on a hot day riding my bike where the asphalt has melted. So people can say that, gee, there's hot climates everywhere. That's not that unusual. Mm. 
What makes this unusual? What's unusual is, think of this, in Western Canada this year, it was over 126 degrees in Canada. The next day, the whole town where that was measured was wiped out by fire. There are people in India now where the temperatures are getting above 125 degrees Fahrenheit. That is a temperature at which you can no longer evaporate enough water to keep cool. And so it means death from excess heat. Do we want to wait until that's happening in Texas and then in Virginia and then in New England? Is What, what is it going to take for us to recognize that the, there, there are an awful lot of canaries out there in the coal mines that are saying, look, this is our last gasp. Let's get to work. I remember when you were consulting in India what, 20 years ago and, and the air quality was so poor that really we're not even talking about temperature, we're talking about the quality of the air. Right. Now, has that changed over 20 years? The air pollution has, but it's all associated with the same thing, which is burning coal and, uh, and gasoline and diesel in, in vehicles. And the, the current numbers are that Probably 60,000 people a year now are dying from heat stress with the overheating. But there are 4 million a year who die from air pollution. And in the United States, it's several hundred thousand. What is the relationship between air pollution and heat? There is one very direct one. When you have these particulates of dark black soot, that just absorbs more heat wherever that soot lands. So it is, in addition to the gases in the atmosphere that are trapping heat, we're trapping it directly on the ground. And when that soot ends up on ice and snow, it melts it faster. And ice and snow has been this reflective mirror that's been reflecting sunlight back and reducing the amount of warming. We have less ice, we have less snow, we're going to have even more solar increases. And, and that contributes to the melting of the ice caps? And yes. Ocean? Oh, yes. Because as you mentioned, the polluted air travels. It travels globally, yes. It's hard to talk about retrofitting houses in the absence of doing something to prevent climate changes. And retrofitting houses is one of the tools we have. It's not the only one, and it won't solve it all by itself. But it's a lot of these things that we have to do. Switching away from, from petroleum-powered vehicles, reducing the uh, combustion of anything. And that includes wood, by the way. Wood, wood emits more carbon dioxide per unit of heat than does coal. So people think burning wood is green. No, it's black. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really not a good thing to do. And that's hard because it's charming to have sit in front of an open fire. But And the industrial scale of using wood now is adding something like... Uh, just by itself, four percent to the amount of global warming every year. So, where is wood used to? Oh, everywhere, particularly in Europe. They have a law in Great Britain. They have a law which basically is shifting all of their coal plants to burn wood. The wood comes from the North America, from the United States and Canada, and it's beginning to come from developing countries. So, we're going to be deforesting the world in order to replace coal. When the point is that they both emit the same amount of heat, or actually wood is worse, the heat trapping gases. And then we've lost the capacity of those cut trees to be absorbing more carbon dioxide. So it's a double loss. And the problem is there are too many financial interests that have influenced our political process. And therefore we cannot make these changes. Let's end on an up note. That's a good idea. You both are working to be part of the solution. And what encouraging news can you give to all of us that if 
we are as careful and as conscious as you are that we'll have a healthier planet and healthier citizens. I think once once people adopt a mindset of questioning how their daily living affects the environment, that they can begin to take steps to to change that. It doesn't do any good just to read about it and wring your hands. You have to take action. And that could be everything from what you consume in terms of food, making sure that the residence you occupy is as well insulated and air sealed as you can. Whenever you're making an improvement, buying a new car, buying a new appliance to seek something that's energy efficient and so forth. I guess one of the things is that the building code really needs to be strengthened and enforced because there are places that have a good building code, but in my experience, it's not uniformly enforced. And a building code minimum standard, it's not what is achievable. And I think towns and states that govern what the rules are should be constantly pushing for higher levels of performance, particularly in new construction. There is no excuse for building a building today that is going to last for at least 50 years and not doing everything that you can to make it energy efficient. Yeah, when Margaret and I drive around and we see buildings under construction or renovating, we always want to weep. <laughs> Just seeing how the missed opportunity. Yeah, we see it as messed up. From my perspective, I'm seeing more and more people, builders, developers, architects, and citizens yes. asking for the kinds of the things that you were the pioneers of. And, and just one last note of positive thing. I think the public is getting much more aware and are way ahead of political leaders. And the, as I said, the business community, some of it is really way ahead as well. There, there's a council of climate-friendly mayors uh, across the country in, in red states and blue states who have really elaborate plans that they're implementing to reduce their emissions from their particular city or town. So I think if we look to the states, we look to the cities, we look to the, the companies that want to do something, encourage them by buying their stuff instead of somebody else's. There are all kinds of ways you can influence the, the outcome as an individual and just think about your own habits. And what we found is we live more comfortably in this house than in any house we've ever lived in. And the study, when we did it, it cost maybe 10 or 12% more. There was just a study that in Boston, it's about 2% more to build a zero net house rather than a standard house. And uh, we do need better codes. We also need to train building inspectors and builders. They need to understand how to do this because it wasn't in whatever way they learn it should be done. So I think all those things would make a big difference. Thank you to Margot Muma and Bill Muma for being our guests. In future episodes in this series, we'll look at housing as it is affected by building materials, construction methods, and climate. We'll hear from homeowners, builders, and a developer We'll look at affordable housing, homelessness, and alternative housing solutions. All should provide fodder for discussion within and among the generations. Please let us know whether this program enhances your appreciation of generations other than yours. Tell us what you think about the issues we discuss. 
You can find more information about them on the Berkshire Ali website, berkshireali.org. You'll find this and future episodes of Living Well into the Future on WTBRFM.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. You can even ask your smart device to play the Living Well into the Future podcast. You can reach us at lwitf22 at gmail.com. That's lwitf22 at gmail.com. Our thanks from me, Julie B. Adler, to Berkshire Ali and its Changing Aging Special Interest Group, and WTBRFM 87.9 Pittsfield for their support, and to our team members, Fran Weinberg, Alan Kofstein, Dale Borman Fink, Lucy Kennedy, and our intern, Ashley Delraditz. Our music is by Michael Koppenheffer. Our graphics are by Gene Rosso. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and not of WTBR Berkshire Ali or the LWITF production team.